Well, before we start in God's Word today, I just want to bring you up to speed on several great things that God is doing in our church. Uh, One, many of the students are missing from the front here because we just had 65 of our junior high Uh, middle school students out on a retreat, and they're going to be coming back. So when you're in the parking lot, please be careful. They're going to be unloading cars and luggage. And at the same time, the high schoolers are going to be loading up to go to their retreat. So it is spring break, and uh, be in prayer for them as they go for safety and that God would deepen their relationships with God and one another. Another is that you heard of the new shuttle lot, which is wonderful to accommodate the, the growth that we have uh, here at Wayside, something we also just had a vote on uh, the seating project here in the sanctuary, and we're going to find out what the results are and let you know that. But there's going to be another upcoming meeting that we're going to need to announce. Uh, one of the things you've heard us talk about is for two years, we've been exploring the possibility of a multi-site and praying for God to open up opportunities and show us places. I can't give you any details now because uh, there's there's a, a piece of land that is available that's actually a church that is going to be um, selling their property, and there are three other churches that are looking at it in addition to us, so I don't want to tell you where it is so we don't tip our hand on things, but uh, the leaders of our church, the elders, are going to be meeting Tuesday night to discuss the options there, and so just be in prayer for great wisdom for our leaders as we look at this opportunity. We've actually been out to tour the property Uh, Don't go to the elders and ask them where it is because they're not going to tell you anything. Uh, But do be in prayer about it uh, just for great wisdom for our leaders and for us as a body as we look to the future, and that is a possibility. I also want to highlight that next Sunday uh, we're going to be doing the baptisms uh, in the services. We have eight people being baptized in our two services, and we have 50 people being baptized at 1230. And so those of you who signed up to be baptized, we're doing a baptismal celebration. Those of you who are here, we invite you to stay. Uh, It's going to be a wonderful time of celebration, seeing over 50 people get baptized next Sunday, which again just shows you what God is doing uh, here at Wayside. Very exciting things. Would you just join me as we thank God for these things and then ask him to lead us as we go into his word. Lord God, we are... We are privileged and excited and humbled to just be a part of your work. Lord, we know that Wayside Chapel is not the church in terms of a building. It's the body of believers, the people who are here. And, Father, we are excited about your work in and among us, what you're doing with your people for the work in our students' lives as they grow deep in their walk with you and with one another. We're excited, Lord, about the many in our congregation who are taking the step of obedience and being baptized. We thank you, Father, for uh, just your continued blessing and growth in our church. Father, it's not about building uh, our little kingdom. It's about a big K, your kingdom. And we want to be used by you, Lord, here in San Antonio to do your work. So we ask, Lord, for leading and guiding and wisdom. We don't want to run ahead of you, God, but we also don't want to get in your way. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would show us the next steps and the things that we are looking at. Your word tells us the mind of man uh, plans, but you're the one who directs our steps. So we're asking for that leading. And now, Lord, would you lead us as we look at your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the name Mosab Hassan Youssef is probably not one that is very familiar to you. But he is the oldest son of Sheikh Hassan Youssef, the founder of the terror group Hamas. He's been called the son of Hamas. Uh, This word Hamas that we hear in our language is actually the Hebrew word that means violence. 
And it was the, it's the name of the terror group over in Palestine and in the areas of Israel that are seeking to destroy the nation of Israel as well as uh, all believers in America uh, worldwide. And so as we look at this man, uh, he was the heir apparent to take over this terror group. But something happened in 1999 where uh, Mossab became a believer in Jesus Christ. And then in 2005, he became a baptized believer. And he now lives here in the United States. And instead of uh, seeking the destruction of Israel in America, he now speaks about the need for all people to come to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the only hope of peace. Um, now, as unlikely as Mossab's story seems, there are also other stories of terrorists who are coming to Jesus. We see on the news all the horrible things happening with ISIS, but there are stories of some of those terrorists becoming believers in Jesus as well as they see how Christians will not recant their faith and some of these terrorists are turning to Jesus. One of the most famous terrorists who has turned to Jesus Christ is the one that we're going to be looking at today in Acts chapter 9. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. This is a man by the name of Saul. And we're going to see that he turned from persecuting the church and the believers to being one who proclaimed the truth that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. Now, for some of you here today, this story may be familiar to you. And because of that, it seems mundane. You're going to say, well, I already kind of know how this turns out. But I want you just to stop for a moment and look at this story with fresh eyes and to remember how miraculous this story is. It would be like hearing in the news in our day that both Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden turned to Jesus Christ as their savior and then became missionaries for the cause of Christ. Uh, That's who this man Saul was. He was a well-known terrorist in his day when it came to trying to wipe out the church. As we look at this passage today, I think one point of application for us is just to look at our own lives and the people we know, friends, co-workers, family members, somebody uh, who lives in our home or next to us maybe that we have thought, this person will never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as you think of that individual, I want you first to pray for them. Uh, As Easter is coming, it may be a great opportunity for you to invite them to come, but also just to remember that God is still in the business of doing miraculous things, of leading the the most uh, unlikely people to come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at Acts chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2, it tells us this about this man. It says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues, to, to send him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as you look at verse 1, you see the word still there, which tells us that we're picking up the story from Acts chapter 7 and 8. If you were here when we looked at those chapters, you'll recall that it was the account of the first Christian martyr. There was a man by the name of Stephen that was on trial. And Stephen was taken out to be stoned. And we read how Saul was there watching over the clothing, the coats, and the items of the people who were murdering this man, Stephen. And he gave hearty approval to the the death of this Christian. And then right after that happened, we're told in Acts 8.3 that Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now that word ravaging that is used there is used of a, a wild animal that is on a ferocious tear where it's destroying people and things. And this is who Saul was. He was, he was out not just 
arresting believers, but he was on a seek-and-destroy mission attacking the church and Christians. And as you think about him doing that, going against the church and imprisoning believers, I just want to mention something to us as Christians. It saddens me when sometimes I see believers who are acting like Saul does. There are some Christians who are more concerned about being right, uh, winning a debate or showing somebody that we're right, than trying to lead a lost person to the Lord. And what God wants us to do is to definitely speak the truth in love, to confront sin and error. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We're called to uh, do the painful thing sometimes of telling somebody you're lost or you're, you're you know, in error in the way that you believe. But it also tells us that we are to do uh, these things in love. You read Romans 5, 8, and it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us while we were yet sinners, while we were still lost and far from God. It says Christ died for us. And so as you share that message of the gospel, as you confront error in in the world around you, make sure you're doing it in love in a way that demonstrates God's love through what falls from your lips and the, the way that you live your life. Now, as we look at Acts 9, we see that some of the Christians who were suffering under this persecution in Jerusalem, it says they fled the city and they headed to Damascus. Now, Damascus was 150 miles away. It's, uh, it's where you see on the news today all the war-torn things that are happening in Syria. This is where Damascus is. And it was 150 miles away, and there was a very large Jewish population there. You'll notice that the word synagogues is plural uh, in our passage. And the scholars tell us there were between 30 to 40 synagogues there in Damascus, showing what a large Jewish population was there. As you read through the Bible, you know that what happens is when the Christians would go into a city, they would often start in a synagogue where there would be people who already knew the the foundations of the law and who uh, Israel's God was and what had been prophesied about the Messiah. And that was where they would often come into to share. Now, we saw in Acts chapter 8 that God was at work first moving into the uh, Samaritans, which were the mixed heritage of Jews and Gentiles. And then we saw how the first of the Gentiles were coming to faith, like the Ethiopian eunuch that Michael talked about last week. But the, the majority of those still coming to faith in the early church were those from the Jewish background. And this is part of what fueled the hatred that, that Saul had for those who were believers, because he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, you'll remember, was one of the religious leaders of the day. They were teachers of the law. They were the ones who promoted uh, the temple sacrifices and and all that the Tanakh, what the Jews call the Old Testament, uh, had to say. And and in the Tanakh is the Torah. The T for Tanakh uh, speaks of the, the five books of the law, and one of those is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And Saul thought that because Jesus Christ had been crucified on a wooden cross, that he could not be the Messiah, that he was a false prophet, that he was a false Messiah. And so Saul, out of his zealousness to protect the purity of the law, as he thought people were corrupting the law, preaching Jesus as the Messiah, he went after uh, the Christians. But as much as Saul knew of the law, he was leaving out parts like in Isaiah 53, In Isaiah 53, it's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament. Again, when you witness to those of Jewish background, uh, don't don't call it the Old Testament. If you can't remember Tanakh, just say, well, in in the, the book of the prophets in Isaiah, 
In Isaiah 53, God reveals how his plan was that the Messiah would come and would die crucified on a cross. Hundreds of years before Rome had ever invented crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah spoke of how the Messiah would die uh, in that horrible way. It speaks of the death of Jesus in many ways. It says he would be with wicked men in his death. And you recall there were two criminals crucified. It says that the Messiah would be with a rich man. And you remember he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And as you have a a Jewish person read Isaiah 53, I've I've sat with rabbis before and said, who does this speak of? And they, they won't even say Hamashiach, the Messiah, many of them. They'll say, well, you believe this is the man, Jesus. And, uh, and, and I say, but who does this speak of? And they say, mm, you know, it, it, it appears to be the Messiah. And in fact, it's been called the forbidden chapter by some because Isaiah 53 has been removed from the, the cycle of readings in the synagogue uh, because it creates questions for some. And it, it points indeed to Jesus. Now, remember, Paul's big problem was that Jesus had died on a cross And later, Saul became the Apostle Paul, and God used him to write the book of 1 Corinthians among many of the other New Testament books. And in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. These were words that as God directed Paul to write them, they had personal meaning because this was the, the roadblock for him, that stumbling block, Uh, for Paul to come to faith in Jesus was the very fact that Christ had been crucified on a cross. So how is it that this man Saul, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law, went from being a persecutor of the church to one proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah? Well, look at what it tells us in verses 3 through 7 of Acts 9. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, you'll recall that early in the book of Acts, we saw that as the church was being birthed, as Jesus before his ascension into heaven, he told the disciples, "Uh, I'm not going to leave you alone. There's promises in God's word that never will I leave you or forsake you. And he said that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And we're told in the book of Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the spirit of God dwells within you? And so as believers, we're not left alone. God is resident with us. Sometimes we look at the world around us. We look at the mess that is going on and we say, where is God? Friends, God is right here with us. God is right here going through it with us. And we see the truth of that as Jesus says to Saul, as the church and the believers who make up the church are being persecuted, he personifies it and says, you are persecuting me personally. Jesus feels the suffering. He's there present with them. And as you look at the passage, if you're using the King James Version of the Bible uh, here, that translation, verse 5 says, And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. Now, in the King James, this wording in yellow is also there in verse 5. It says, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. 
Now, most modern English translations don't have that in it because the oldest and best of the Greek manuscripts do not contain those words. And sometimes you'll hear people tell you, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. It's full of errors. There's things like this. And, and here I am telling you, well, here's in some of the manuscripts, this isn't there. So is this a mistake? What happened? What happened is if you go to uh, Acts chapter 22, where the sto- 26, where the story is retold, this is what the King James Version says. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, as you look in your other translations of the Bible, there in Acts 26, 14, you see those words. And what happened is at some point a scribe was recording and, and, and copying the manuscripts, and he knew it was there in Acts 26, and he imported it in here to try to harmonize what was said. It doesn't destroy the integrity of the text. It doesn't destroy uh, our faith. Now, reading that, some of you are going, what does this mean to kick against the pricks? Uh, Some of your translations say to kick against the goads. And what happened is um, you've probably seen a shepherd's crook, and it'll it'll be this stick with kind of a a rounded end, and many of them have a point with a a metal knob, or others at the bottom will have a pointed stick uh, on the, the crook. And what would happen is, as a shepherd would lead his flock or his herd, uh, he would have animals sometimes that didn't want to move. He would have animals sometimes that were wayward, and he would use that crook to pull them in, or he would prod them to make them move, and he would sometimes have to really goad them to get them to go where they needed to go. And these animals uh, could, could resist, they could stand there, and as they're getting poked with this pointed end of a stick, they kicking back at the shepherd. Well, you know what? In the end, who wins? The shepherd. The shepherd says, I can do this all day and I'm going to push harder. And, you know, and finally the pain would move the animal where it needed to go. And this is a picture of Saul. God was trying to move him to an understanding that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And Saul was resisting it. He was fighting it. He was unwilling to, to go to where God wanted him to go. And this is, this is what happens with us sometimes. We too fight back against God. And as Saul is fighting against God, he was warned about this earlier. In Acts 5, 38 through 39, we saw where there was a, a teacher of the law by the name of Gamil. He was, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the master teaching Paul and others. And what he said to, to all of the, the Jewish council is this in Acts 5, 38 through 39. Stay away from these men. And let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found fighting against God. And this was Saul. Saul thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was uh, trying to wipe out the church following a false Messiah. And as he's there on the road to Damascus, as he encounters the risen Christ, as his bright light shines around him, imagine the shock he felt. Because he thought he had been doing God's business, and what he found out is he had been fighting God all along. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. And Saul goes, "Uh uh-oh. This is the guy that I've been trying to say uh, did not rise from the dead. Remember, people, there were over 500 witnesses that were running around saying, we've seen the resurrected Lord. At the stoning of Stephen, 
Uh, Stephen said before the council, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is what caused him to say, blasphemy, let's lynch this guy and kill him. Paul, as he was arresting and imprisoning believers, as he's dragging them in, many of them would have been sharing their testimonies with him. I tell you, Saul, we've seen the Lord. He's the Messiah. You need to come to faith. So imagine the shock when he suddenly realizes is they've all been telling the truth. I said Jesus was not the Messiah. I said he was dead and cursed and buried in a tomb and somebody stole his body. But now he's talking to the resurrected Lord. He sees Jesus face to face. And Jesus says he did what Thomas probably, where he said, see my hands, put put your fist in my side, put your fingers in the nail holes. We don't know all that Christ said to him, but Saul suddenly realizes Jesus is alive. And I've been fighting. I've been fighting against that. How many of you here today are like Saul? How many of you have been hearing others tell you, Jesus is God's son. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Jesus conquered sin and death. And and you just kind of go, yeah, I don't think so. You've been fighting against God's leading. He's been kind of prodding. He's been kind of pricking you and moving you and goading you to say you need to go to the cross. You need to come to my son. And you've been kicking back against it, resisting it. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, well, hey, I'm here in church. I'm listening. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I am glad you're here. We want you to know you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to question. You're welcome to ask. Uh, We want you to, to search the scriptures. We want you to ask God, are you really real? Is this stuff really what the scripture says? Jesus, are you really the Messiah? But just being here in church will not save you. Corrie ten Boom was a famous missionary during the Holocaust. And her father used to tell people, just because a mouse is in a cookie jar, it doesn't make it a cookie. And just because you're here in church, it doesn't make you a Christian. You see, you have to come to faith in Jesus. It's not enough just to hear the good news. You have to hear and respond to the good news. Being religious or following rules isn't what God wants. He wants you to have a personal relationship with him. You see, Saul thought he had all the bases covered. He was a guy who was doing everything that he thought God wanted him to do. He was very religious. But he never had this relationship with Jesus Christ. As he heard Stephen's sermon back in Acts chapter 7, you'll recall that Stephen walked through uh, the history of Israel and who Jesus was. And we saw that what he pointed to was the religious systems of sacrifices and offerings were not what saves us. He spoke of, of how Jesus was the permanent and perfect Lamb of God. And he pointed to how the high priest would go behind the veil once a year to put the blood offering on the halismos, that covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And we saw that as Jesus died on the cross in John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished. Literally that Greek word, teteleste, which means paid in full. And we saw how Jesus had paid the penalty of death and how he had closed the account for those who have come to faith in him. And Paul had been there. He had heard that sermon. He had rejected that. He had rejected Jesus. And now he comes to the point where he's, he's there laying down on the ground, staring up at the face of Jesus, and he says, Who are you, Lord? Now, Paul wasn't going, are you, are you Jesus? I mean, he knew it was Jesus. What he was really asking the question is, God, I've been following you, I thought. 
You were this distant God and there were rules and rituals and check boxes that I was covering, but I never knew you personally. And he's, he's asking the question, what do I do? How, how do I know you? How do I become a follower in you? This was a 180 degree turn for Saul. He was a guy who was self-righteous. He was a religious leader who thought he knew how the system worked. And suddenly he realizes the whole system has, has collapsed. Everything he thought he needed to do was the wrong things. I want you to turn over to the book of Philippians. If you're in Acts, just go to the right. You'll pass books like Romans and Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians. And then you'll come to the book of Philippians. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3... And verses 4 through 9, Paul, as this is Paul who had been Saul. He's now the Apostle Paul, and God is using him to write this letter. And what Paul does here in Philippians 3, 4 through 9 is he gives us his resume. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, that is the works that he does, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, what he does here is he presents his resume. He, he lays out the ledger and he says, okay, here, here are all the things I thought I needed to do, the debits and the credits. And as, as he looks at it after encountering Jesus in that blinding light, you see, in Acts chapter 9, he suddenly sees what true righteousness is. And it resets his, his ledger. What he realizes is, <laughs> I'm, I'm not in, I'm spiritually bankrupt. But as he presents his resume here, anybody who was trusting in their own life, their own good works to get to God, they would have said, whoa, wait a minute. If Paul can't make it, None of us have a chance. You see, if you were reading a stat sheet of an athlete, this, this would be a Hall of Famer. Paul was a religious superstar. As, as he presents his, his resume here, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And being circumcised as a baby on the eighth day meant that Paul was raised in an observant Jewish home. His parents were followers of the law before Paul was. So what he's saying is, uh, I'm not a convert to Judaism. I was raised by religious parents, and following the rules, Paul and his parents said, we've got that covered. He says, I am of the nation of Israel, meaning Paul was a pure Jew. Remember, the Samaritans in Acts 8 were Gentiles and Jewish descendants that were mixed together. He says, I'm pure. He goes on and and talks more about that, saying um, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Another way of saying, if, if background counts for something, then check off that box. Benjamin and Joseph were the favorite sons of Jacob. And this was the tribe that the first king of Israel came from. So he said, as to pedigree, I'm an aristocrat. Uh, he goes on and he says that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This not only brags about the purity of his background, but it also speaks to the fact he's a leader in the religious system. 
As to the law, he says a Pharisee. Now, in our day, a Pharisee is a negative term. It, it means a legalistic person. But this was a badge of honor. The word Pharisee literally means separated ones. It means the people who we would say the word holy means sanctified, set apart. And the Pharisees were those that said we are being set apart out of the nation to be the standard bearers. Uh, He says, as to zeal for the law, I was a persecutor of the church, what we're looking at here in Acts 9 and in other places. As to the law, Paul says, I was blameless. Now, he's not claiming to be sinless. But what he's saying is, when I broke the law, I followed the prescribed offerings. I did everything that was required. Again, as a box checker, Paul is saying, I've got every base covered. He says, I was impeccable in all my practices, added up any way you want from any angle. And if there was anyone who had any hope of getting to God by the way they lived, he said, I'm the guy. But then look at what he says. He tells us, you know, I used to think that way until I met the resurrected Lord. Because he says in Philippians 3, 7, I saw my bookkeeping system was broken. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, God corrected the accounting errors I I had made. He, He says, I was following rules and ritual and religion, and I suddenly found out that's not what God wants. He wants a relationship, and I didn't have that. He says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, as he talks about loss here, some of you may be sitting here saying, yeah, I kind of know what Paul's saying. Remember, Paul was a guy whose religious career was up and to the right. He was on the fast track to the top. He was a candidate for every high office. And he, he says, I was, I was doing everything right, and suddenly the whole thing collapsed. I gave up all this stuff I had been working for my whole life. And some of you maybe remember some of the things you used to do before you became a believer. And every now and then, if you're honest, you say, yeah, you know, I used to do some really fun, old, sinful things. And I've kind of lost that. I've given it up for Christ. And now I come here in church. And uh, Holy, holy is God. And if you're honest, you're saying, you know, I've, I've given some stuff up for the Lord. You know, living your life thinking that way is, is like a, a woman who was on an ocean liner. And the, the ocean liner suddenly was sinking. And the crew gave a call to abandon ship, and everybody was called up on the deck and told, get in the lifeboats, we're, we're, we're abandoning ship right now. And this woman was a very rich lady who had a lot of expensive jewelry in her stateroom. And she said to the crew, oh, oh, hold this, this boat, I've got to go below deck and get all my stuff. And, and the crew said, look, lady, we're, we're dropping the last lifeboat now. If you don't get in the boat and go with us, you're going down with the ship. And she's... Okay, and she gets in the boat, and they, they launch out, and, you know, a short time after that, the, the ship goes under the water. And as she's sitting there in the boat, she can, she can go, I lost a lot of good stuff. I've, I've got a lot of valuable jewelry that just went to the bottom of the ocean. Or she can sit there and say, thank God that I didn't lose my life. And that's Paul. Paul isn't sitting there saying, gosh, look at everything I lost. Instead, he says, thank God for the gift of eternal life that I've been given. Not because of anything that I did, but because of what Christ did for me. 
Now, if there's any doubt to anybody reading this of what Paul was trusting in, he, he gives a very vivid picture to what he says here in Philippians 3.8. He says, if you put everything together, all that I have, all that I've done, he says it amounts to a pile of rubbish. Now, as you read that, you might think rubbish. Well, that's kind of like a little pile of trash. And we, we, you know, maybe picture a confetti that's come out of a paper shredder. And we say, well, as I took all my things and I shredded them, there's this nice little clean pile of, of, of paper that's shredded. That's, that's rubbish. If you're using the King James Version of the Bible, it's a little more courageous in the translation, a little closer to the Greek word used because it says dung. You know what dung is? Sure you do. Paul actually goes even farther than using the word dung. I'm not going to, I usually tell you the Greek words, but I'm not going to tell you here because then you'll walk around saying, I I know how to cuss in Greek. (laughs) Paul actually uses a word that we would consider a cuss word here. And he's not doing it for shock value. He's doing it because he says, I want to make it 100% abundantly clear what your life and your works look like. Paul says, when you add it all up, when you think about your body, I'm sorry to be graphic here, but Paul is. He says, when you eat food, what does your body produce? He says, that's what it is. So what Paul does <laughs> is he says, imagine, sometimes I'll ask people, when you get to the gate of heaven, and God says, why should I let you in? And I know theologically God won't do that. Our name's in the book of life, but I'm just trying to see what people are going to say. And what people will often say, well, I've been good, I've gone to church, I put money in the plate. And what they're doing is they're adding up all this stuff and they're saying, I'm going to show up at the gate of heaven and I'm going to say, here you go, God, this is why you should let me in. This is what I did with my life. You get Paul's picture? You see, God is a holy and perfect God. And it says that our sin looks like this to him. It's repulsive. There is absolutely no way that any of us would think we can show up at the gate of heaven and say, God, this is how good I've been. It's what I did with my life. This is why you should let me in. And what Paul says is I added it all up as I looked at everything that I was counting on. That's what I produced. And he said, but then I washed my hands in the blood of Jesus Christ. I let the one who died for my sins, the one who paid the penalty, the one who took away my sin as far as the east is from the west. And when he shows up in heaven, he says, God, there is absolutely no reason I should come in except that I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And friends, that is the only way any of us ever walk through the gate of heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And this is Paul. Paul was that guy on the road to Damascus saying, I'm zealous. I'm doing all this for you, God. He said, I was there seeking to shed the blood of believers. But instead, he encounters the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 9, I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes through God on the basis of faith. That's there in Philippians 3. He piles the whole resume up and he says, this, this is what I'm now trusting in. As you look at your life, friends, what are you trusting in today? Is it your good works? Or is it the work that God did for you on the cross when he died to pay the penalty for your sins and mine? As we look at this passage in Acts 9, we see that Saul comes to faith in Christ at that moment. 
We know that because as the, the passage continues, it tells us in verse 18, he's baptized as a believer. As we look at verses 19 and 20, these things we're going to be looking at next week, we see how he begins preaching that Jesus is the Son of God sent to save us from our sins. Now, as this is happening, look at how the people respond in verse 21. It says, all those hearing him, this is as he's preaching, continue to be amazed. And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, the, on, on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? The, the people say, this, this was Jihadi John. This, this was the guy who was killing Christians. And suddenly he says he's a Christian. And he's telling everybody the only way home to God is through this one, Jesus Christ. What happened? What happened is that he sees Jesus Christ for who he is. What about you this morning? Have you come to a point in your life where you've realized as you've encountered the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and seen the righteousness of God, and when you compare yourself to him, you suddenly go, I'm lost. You know, maybe you walked in here this morning saying, you know, I'm checking off the boxes. I'm going to church. I'm doing the things I need to do. You're being religious. You have uh, rules and rituals you're following, but you've never come to a personal relationship with God's son, Jesus Christ. If that's who you are, friends, you're just like Saul was. You're lost. But the good news is you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to hear it. I want you to remember that there were some other men who were with Saul on the road. Look at what verse 7 says. It says, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, not, but seeing no one. So there's, there's Saul. He gets knocked down off his high horse, literally. He's riding in. God stops him in his tracks. He's flat on his back. There were others who were with him. They see a flash of light. They hear this, this rumbling noise, but they, they're going, I don't, I don't know what's going on. You know, I'd love to tell you that everybody in that moment came to faith in Christ, but the passage doesn't tell us that. In fact, as you read through the text in the original language, it seems to tell us the opposite. Because this story is retold there in Acts 26. And I want to get technical just for a moment. Don't go to sleep on me. I know it's daylight savings time. But um, let me just show you why I don't think these guys came to faith. As you look at the original Greek text in Acts 9-7, it says the men who were with him heard the sound, literally the voice. Now, there are different uh, cases. One is called a genitive case. And it's attached to the verb for hearing. And when you have it there, the meaning of that word phonase is they heard the sound. But when you get to Acts 26 where the story is retold, uh, and again in Acts 22.9, there it says they did not understand the voice. There it's phonase. It's the accusative case that's attached. And some of you are going, sleepy, I'm, I'm getting lost. Stay with me for a moment. Here's the bottom line. Paul says in Acts 22.9, And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. The men with Saul heard the sound in chapter 9, but they didn't understand what it means in chapter 22. They saw the light in chapter 22, but they didn't see Jesus in chapter 9. Let me explain it this way. Have you ever come to church with somebody? You've invited a friend, a neighbor, and 
You leave and you're like, wow, wasn't that a great service? I got so much out of the message. And the person goes, didn't understand a thing. Don't know what you're so excited about. It was right over my head. Didn't get anything out of the service. You know, Jesus was constantly saying, they have ears to hear, but they don't hear. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. And what it means is sometimes two people can see something and only one of them truly sees comprehending. See, in the Bible, there are different words that are used. When we talk about knowing God, there's a, there's a Greek word, oida, that means a head knowledge. You have an intellectual understanding. But then there's a gnosko word used that means to have an experiential understanding. It's where the information goes 18 inches from our head to our heart, and we get it, and we receive Christ. These guys experience the same thing, but they don't come to a faith in Christ, it appears. And you would say, but Roger, it was such a dramatic encounter. There was a light and there was a voice and Paul becomes a believer. And what's wrong with these guys? You know, we look in the world around us and how many times are there people in the world around us who say, there is no God. And yet the book of Romans tells us they're without excuse because it says the creation speaks of the creator. You have friends or family members you've witnessed to and you say, why don't they get it? Why can't they see it? They're seeing, they're hearing, but they're not receiving. You know, I talk to people sometimes and they say, Roger, I want deliverance, but they don't want to know about the one who delivers. I, I talk to people sometimes who say, I want, I want that peace that I see Christians have as they go through cancer and, and, and death and various things. And they say, I, I, I want that. But what they go looking for it is in, in a bottle or with drugs. And they don't want the one who gives the peace that passes all understanding. As, as you listen to this message today, I want you to hear this. If everything I've said to you so far has gone, and you're going, yeah, I'm that, I'm that guy or girl. I'm going to walk out of here and go, I don't know what everybody's so excited about. I want you to hear this. I want you to look at the cross. Because at the cross, God says, I don't love you this much or this much. I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died for you. And men and women, boys and girls, his arms are still open wide today. And they're not open wide because the, the nails have nailed him there. His arms are open wide in love. He says in Romans 5.8, I demonstrated my love for you in this while you were yet a sinner. I died for you. If you're saying, Roger, my life is such a mess. I'm so far off the rails. God has nothing. He would never want anything to do with me. You are wrong. God wants everything to do with you. He came and he died for you just as you are. And if you're saying, well, I've got to get my life cleaned up first before I come to Christ, that's like saying, you know, I'm so sick, I need to go to the hospital, but I have to get better before I can go to the hospital. God says, I love you just like you are. But men and women, he also says, I love you too much to leave you like you are. And once you come to faith in Christ, where you say to God, God, I'm a sinner, like Paul, who was named Saul, you recognize, you know, I'm, I, I can't do it on my own. I've been trusting in the wrong things. And when you hit bottom, when you're flat on your back and you look up and you see God and you say, okay, I surrender. I'm going to quit kicking against the goads. I'm going to quit fighting you, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. The word means literally to stop, to turn around, go in the other direction. It means you're going to quit running from God on the cross and you're instead going to run to him and say, here I am. And Jesus says, here I am, and he'll embrace you and he'll make you a son or a daughter of his. Next week, we're going to see as Saul goes into Damascus, there's a man by the name of Ananias. 
And this guy was scared to come see Paul. God tells him, hey, I want you to go see this guy, Saul. And he goes, the guy who came to kill everybody? And he says, yeah, that's the guy. And as he comes in and Saul is sitting there blind and he's, you know, just in prayer and thinking and fasting and waiting. And suddenly this guy walks in and what does he do? You can read where Ananias comes in and he touches Paul. And he addresses him this way. He says, brother Saul, brother. Wow. This was the guy who came to kill him. And he suddenly says, God has told me you're part of the family. And the Bible says to us men and women, boys and girls, that when we come to faith in Christ, we're made a son and a daughter of God. You're welcomed into the family. And if you're here today and you're far from God and you think you can't get to God on your own, you're right, you can't. Remember, Paul called them the way. And they were called the way because in John 14, 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I'll tell you this morning that the road you're on, that you're going 90 to nothing down, you're going to find out the bridge is out one day. And you're not going to get to God the way you've been trying. But as you come to faith in Jesus, you can picture that cross being laid down over that chasm called sin. And God has given you the way home. And if you're here today and you'd like to receive God's great gift of new life to you, I invite you to do so. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But you do have to say to God, God, I'm turning to you today. And I can tell you, when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't see a blinding light. I didn't hear a voice. Maybe you've had that experience, but most people don't. But it doesn't mean that your conversion is any less supernatural. Paul also wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when you come to faith in Christ, he's going to hit the reset button. He's going to make you a new creation. He's going to welcome you home and say, I don't care what your background, your past looked like. You are a redeemed son or daughter of mine, washed in the blood of the lamb. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Welcome home. If you'd like to become a part of the family of God today, if you've never taken that step of faith, I want you just to bow your heads here. And I want you in your head and your heart, in the privacy of your mind and your heart, to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. That means you've, you've messed up. You've made mistakes. It could be little things like lying or taking a cookie out of the pantry, or it could be something you think is bigger. Either way, you're a sinner. And the Bible is clear that when we sin, there is a penalty called death. That's why Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're ready to receive his great gift of new life, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you'd like to pray that prayer, please bow your head and just say these words with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And for that, God, I'm sorry. I'm turning from my old sinful way of life. And I'm turning to you, Jesus the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, the one who took my sins on as you died on the cross, the one who washed away my sins through your blood. I believe, Jesus, you've paid that penalty of death for me, and you proved you are who you are, the Son of God, the Messiah, by conquering sin and death as you rose from the dead three days later. Thank you, God, for the gift of new life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. There will be prayer leaders at the front. We want to talk to you to make sure you understand the step of faith you took and then to help you begin to grow. I'm going to ask you now to stand and sing this closing song of worship as we thank God for his gift to us.